Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to co-host today's Grand Rounds with the section of dermatology, soon to be the Department of Dermatology, and uh, we're all looking forward to that, of course. Um, Dr. Nicole LeBuff is with us today, and she's going to be introduced to us uh, by Joy Carter, who is going to be the vice chair of the new Department of Dermatology. And so uh, she's an assistant professor of, I'll say, dermatology. And please come up, Joy, and tell us about our guests today. Thank you. Uh, yes, we're very much looking forward to July. So it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Nicole LaBeouf. Um, I've known Nicole for uh, about 10 years now, and she is originally from Massachusetts. She went to Middlebury, so she's familiar with that biting cold weather that we're having this morning. Um, and uh, she got her bachelor's um, in biochemistry there and then returned to Massachusetts to UMass for her MD. Um, she then went uh, big city to New York uh, for her derm training at Columbia where she was chief resident and then returned to her roots in Boston where she did her cutaneous oncology fellowship. And that's really where a lot of her work has sprung from. Um, after fellowship, she uh, eventually joined staff at Brigham and Dana-Farber um, and subsequently received her MPH um, during that time. And so from the Harvard School of Public Health. So uh, her training has allowed her to grow this new role um, at Dana-Farber, where she's now the director for Center of Cutaneous Oncology, um, director for the program in skin toxicities, and she's also a co-chair for the immunotherapy toxicity program. Um, all these roles combined with her translational work that she does with Dr. Tom Cuffer and Dr. Rachel Clark, um, with all of the T-cell work that's been done there, allows for great um, new research studies and projects that she's been working on that are super exciting. Um, I would say Nicole is so impressive in what she's done academically, but one of the things I so appreciate about her is that she is one of the most devoted clinicians um, that I have met, and her heart bleeds for cancer care. Um, and so it's not just taking care of the lymphoma patients and curing what you can, um, but also her desire to manage the side effects and alleviate any suffering that kind of comes along the way. And I really respect her, and I'm so grateful that you've come to give us a lecture today on the toxicities. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks, Joy. Thank you to you guys for being here. Um, I know we have a pretty diverse audience, so hopefully um, there'll be a little something for everyone today. Um, and again, I could talk about uh, side effects from cancer treatment um, all day, uh, and any drug that you can come up with, I can I can tell you what I know about it. Um, but I will I will uh, try to stay focused today on uh, uh, toxicities from targeted anti-cancer anti therapies, and um, Throughout the talk, I hope you get the sense that really the skin is a window into what's often going on in, inside the patient uh, and is a place where we have a, a opportunity uh, to do a lot of research and to improve lives. So um, our objectives today uh, for uh, Grand Rounds are to allow you guys to identify some key reaction patterns, uh, regardless of your specialty, that are associated with commonly used targeted anti-cancer therapies, to have some initial management strategies um, in your queue, and to... So I don't have to stand right here? Yeah. Sure. Um, <clears throat> you could tell I'm not a person who likes to stand still. Yeah. Thank you. How's that? Fine? Good? Better? Um, Fails on. How's that? Better? Fine? Good? Um, I think a key uh, factor in caring for patients both in the hospital and out of the hospital is figuring out uh, when to call for help. Um, and I think the very short answer to that is often, uh, if not always, if you're looking at something and you're not exactly sure what's going on, the care of all of our patients is best done, I think, in teams. Uh, and so my, my preference is that you always have a low threshold for us to ask for help in every direction uh, from all of our colleagues. So today I'm going to do a very brief introduction, and I'm going to focus on some reaction patterns that I think are pertinent to everyone. So reactions uh, on the hands and feet are going to be one of our anchors. Reactions on the face are going to be another anchor. And then I'm going to spend the, a good chunk of time talking about patterns uh, in patients treated with uh, 
drugs targeting the immune checkpoint inhibitor, um, and that is because they are so ubiquitously used, um, and again, because the skin can really help us understand toxicities in every organ system. So back in the 1940s, Dr. Sidney Farber was the first uh, person to be kind of crazy uh, like us, and he decided, uh, as a pathologist at Children's Hospital, that it might be a good idea to do something more in taking care of children with leukemia. So at the time, kids with leukemia were admitted to the hospital basically for hospice care. There was nothing that could be done. Um, and he thought that impairing or impacting uh, folate metabolism might actually lead to improvements and treating these leukemic patients. And he actually successfully induced not only temporary remissions, um, but cures in some of these children. Um, and again, most people thought he was uh, crazy and that this was unethical, uh, but he did it uh, and he did it well. And a year later, he published um, some observations on the toxicities that he saw with these uh, folate antagonists. Um, he talks about stomatitis, mucous membrane involvement. So the initial toxicities from these drugs were on the skin and mucous membranes. You could see them. And his recommendation at the time was that the most effective treatment seemed to be stop the chemotherapy and the toxicity will get better. So this is kind of a common sense thing to say. Yes, the most effective way to prevent the toxicity, to treat the toxicity from a drug is to actually stop the drug, but that's not um, practical. Um, and so the question that I ask is, you know, how much progress have we made? Where are we in 2020? Anyone from oncology in the room, anyone who takes care of oncology patients probably knows we have not made very much progress, right? Your gut is still, the drug is causing the side effect, stop the drug. Uh, or give some globally immunosuppressing medication um, and, and we really just haven't made much progress. Here's cryotrexate mucositis. Um, you know, dermatology often has people sort of make snarky comments frequently. Our specialty sometimes uh, not as well respected as others. I carry this photo around in my pocket when I was a resident, and anyone who said it was just the skin, I pulled it out and I said, that's not just the skin, and I reminded them. So it's never just the skin to our patients, um, and it's certainly not just the skin to us. Um, here we are with a side effect from rigorafenib immunotherapy is inducing all sorts of side effects. So we have not actually made that much progress in managing the side effects once they develop. The scope of this problem of skin toxicities is actually huge. If you look in the literature and put together graphs like this from meta-analyses after meta-analyses, you see that targeted therapies and immunotherapies actually can cause all grade toxicities in up to 80 to 90% of patients with some drug classes, high-grade toxicities that are uh, quality of life threatening, uh, with some multi-kinase inhibitors impair uh, activities of daily living significantly in 20% of patients. So the scope of the problem is actually huge. There's a huge burden of disease when it comes to skin side effects. There are studies showing that it impacts dose and patient adherence. It is costly to the patients with upwards of $2,000 coming out of pocket for single uh, side effects from single targeted therapies in the patient. It definitely impacts quality of life. And anytime, I would argue, that you take a patient off the drug that could save their life, you are going to impact prognosis. And so how do I think about these patients? You know, it's overwhelming. There are new drugs every single day. There are new combinations happening. There's, we get two weeks of dermatology training in medical school. It's very difficult. Um, and so that's okay. It's okay that that's where we start. The first thing I always ask is, do I know anything about this drug? What do I know about it? If I don't know anything about the drug, do I know anything about the class of drug? If I don't know anything about the class of drug, what pattern do I see when I look at the patient? And can that help me learn anything about, you know, A and B above? So I just got called a few weeks ago about a person on ertafitinib. What do I know about ertafitinib? Absolutely nothing. Anybody know anything about ertafitinib? Well, okay, I Google. Ertafitinib is an FGFR inhibitor. Do I know anything about FGFR inhibitors? Okay, I know that I saw a couple patients with nail changes a few years ago with FGFR inhibitors. Not helpful. What's the patient coming in for? Stellate, tender, necrotic ulcers on the thighs. This looks like a vascular problem. Something is blocked off. It's painful. Does ertafitinib or FGFR inhibitors cause vascular occlusion, hypercoagulopathy, alter anything with calcium or phosphorus? Actually, 77% of uh, FGFR inhibitors cause... What is FGFR? Oh, sorry, fibroblast growth factor receptor. There you go, yeah, perfect. Um, so it's a targeted therapy to hit mutations in that receptor on cancer cells. 77% of the time it causes hyperphosphatemia. When you have high phosphate and high calcium, you get a calcium phosphate pro product. This patient had non-uremic calciphylaxis. Absolutely no way I would have predicted that by ertafitinib or FGFR, but just going backwards, we sort of figured it out. So you have to do a lot of communicating. I, you know, I called James Cleary, our medonc, and I said, what the heck does this do to what, wh where does it act? How does it work? What are its side effects? He said phosphatemia, then we had our answer. So I'm gonna go through some cases sort of to anchor us as we think about these patients. Um, and again, please chime in if I'm saying anything that uh, isn't clear because we do have a, a super diverse audience. 
I want to tell you about my friend, the holiday shopper, 69-year-old with a GI stromal tumor. Um, he was started on regorafenib, which is a multi-kinase inhibitor that hits veg VEGF and other um, kinases. Uh, 160 milligrams is the full dose. I will say, again, if you ask medical oncologists what dose you use, they almost always say, always say, we never start at 160. It's too toxic. People suffer too much at the full dose. Um, but they always try. Um, and he developed these painful areas on his feet uh, with swelling, redness, blisters at pressure points within a few weeks. And I think for a uh, derm team in the, in the uh, front row there, he is bone here. You see the shape of the blister that has formed. Looking at this patient's exam, that should help sort of guide you in, in mechanisms. Something about pressure, something is happening there that might help us intervene in a, in a productive and targeted way. Hey, if anybody's on the phone, can you guys mute your telephone? You're coming into the conference room. That's, that's, that's how loud our codes are at Dana-Farber. Oh. I just ignored the sound. Um, they're talking about trash cans. Um, <laughs> so, so this patient's ability to walk was impaired. So it was impacting his, his um, activities of daily living. He had been dose-reduced multiple times. You look at his exam, it's sort of very bright red. There's calluses. It's painful. Um, when he was on 80 milligrams, so GI stromal tumors are sort of uh, more slow-growing malignancy, and, and cases like this allow us to sort of follow things over time. So at 80 milligrams, his tumor would progress. If he went higher than 80 milligrams, his hand-foot-skin reaction was limiting. Um, but the drug clearly worked at the higher toxicity. So we got to sort of think about and play around and try to intervene. So we started some dilute vinegar soaks um, because dilute vinegar is actually antimicrobial and safe as long as you don't mix it with bleach, which makes chlorine gas, um, which is important because later I'm going to tell you about bleach baths. Um, we had him do um, Vaseline emollients with, with activity. We used cobetazole ointment for inflamed areas. We did some meticulous dressing changes. He had a very amazing wife who would like cut Xeriform and wrap it around each toe. And with that intervention, he was able to get up to 120 milligrams. So reactions on the hands and feet, super common in, in dermatology, in oncology, in the hospital. Patients on cancer treatment get toxicity on their hands and feet. Um, this is a place where most people lump. Uh, and I am a definitive splitter when it comes to reactions on the hands and feet. I think as long as we lump these side effects all together, we're never going to figure out uh, targeted ways to uh, mitigate them. Um, and so I think just no matter what your specialty, taking a look at those three hands, you would argue that they all look different. Um, so very quickly, I think not all reactions on the hands and feet are the same. Um, I want to just give you some key pearls about the classes that I think no matter what your specialty, you might be able to help uh, intervene. So dorsal hand foot syndrome, reactions on the tops or the backs of the hands and feet are specific to taxanes. Um, they're more common when you combine taxanes. They're more common with leakily regimens. They happen quickly. And they're associated with onycholysis or nail lifting. Um, and nail lifting or onycholysis can be extremely painful. If you've ever whacked a fingernail and bled underneath it, imagine all 10 of your fingernails and all 10 of your toenails suddenly having sub-uncle um, sub hemorrhage. It's, it's excruciatingly painful at times, um, and uh, it, it makes patients miserable. So this is a patient uh, with metastatic thyroid cancer. Again, just a distinct type of rash, rash on the backs of the hands. Despite the fact that taxanes are used for virtually every cancer and have been around for 20 years, we still get consults about this reaction uh, multiple times a week. Um, you can see here, it does not, for the residents, doesn't cross Wallace's lines. It's the top of the hands for sure. This patient lifted all of his nails. He actually suffered from subungual MSSA infection and had to have his chemotherapy interrupted because of the nail toxicity. So the, the sad part and also the amazing part is actually that this toxicity is preventable. So if you cool the hands and feet, starting 15 minutes before, throughout the, the treatment, and for about 15 minutes after the taxing infusion, you reduce the skin toxicity dramatically, but you reduce the grade two or greater nail toxicity to zero. So the thing that actually results in dose interruption goes away with some ice. So even though many of you may not have heard of this, and even though you know it's not the standard practice at most places, Amazon is aware. You can actually <laughs> buy chemotherapy uh, gloves and stockings. These are like over $250. Most of our patients just use biohazard bags with ice. I will say any cooling is better than no cooling. When I started and the nurses were refusing to give patients ice, the patients would just ask for continuous um, refill of their ginger ale. Um, any cooling is better than nothing to, to prevent the nail toxicity. Uh, and just to bring home the point, this was a patient referred for her bright red erythema tops of her feet. She had subungual hemorrhage here on her nails. 
um, and she wrapped her feet with ice packs. And I said, how did you do it? She said, well, I didn't like how the ice felt on my toes. So she kept her toes out. And lo and behold, she blistered her toes, uh, which were sticking out of the ice pack. And if you look at the side, again, she showed me, there was actually a sharp cutoff here um, where the ice pack sat. So where the ice didn't hit is red, where the ice did hit is, is brown. She was able to tolerate her entire uh, treatment regimen. Uh, once the nails are purple, blue, whatever, you can paint them. It's just cosmetic. Uh, so watch out for secondary infection, culture, anything that looks like pus. But using ice actually mitigates this toxicity, and it's a very low cost. It's different. Yeah. No idea. There's very little data. And I think I've, you guys in the front, in Bologna, they're still clumped all together with hand foot syndrome, I think. Um, so, so little has been done to, to study it. I, don't know. I actually think, you know, I would hypothesize there's something about, um, you know, uh, that the ice is actually not working in a vasoconstrictive fashion, but in a slowing metabolic, uh, you cool a heart when someone has an MI, you cool a spine, metabolic turnover. Um, but I don't know. Different from classic hand foot syndromes, this is what most people think of, right? Palmal plantar erythrodysesthesia, acral erythema, dermatologists historically have been annoying, no offense to those of you who've been around for a while, with naming things with big, long, triple names that aren't necessarily helpful and then renaming them with other things that are triple names that aren't necessarily helpful. So hand foot syndrome or acral erythema or toxic erythema of chemotherapy, whatever, that's what we classically think about. This is what you see with your, cyto uh, your standard cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy, also weeks to months affects the palms and soles, usually with dysesthesia uh, or burning pre prior to um, the development of the skin toxicity. The takeaway here is only that it is distinctly different. And until you know, we think about each of these in a different way, we're not gonna make much progress. So this is a patient who went to the ER three times um, for his uh, toxicity uh, of the hand. Definitely palms and soles. I have a little ice cube sign here. So anywhere where there's data to support the use of ice to prevent a toxicity, there's a little ice cube sign. Because, uh, again, ice is cheap. So if you look in the literature, some people have wrapped people's ankles and feet who are on doxorubicin. This is kind of a crummy um, image, but you can see that the patient had a rash proximal to the ice, not distal to the ice. And for a doxorubicin, which can actually also cause uh, flexural or intertriginous eruptions, we do a ton of packing um, armpits and groin to keep people on doxorubicin. So these patients are often metastatic breast cancer patients who are on long-term doxorubicin or sarcoma patients. And so cooling actually can help with the skin and the hand foot toxicity in them. Uh, and this is just to remind us that uh, capsidobine or zolota and hand foot syndromes are not just, a, again, a skin problem. This is a patient who actually died of pseudomonal sepsis from getting secondarily infected uh, in the reaction. Um, so if you look in the literature on hand foot syndrome, there are a bajillion, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers on how to manage it. I've summarized here for you what there is in sufficient data to support, and that is that celecoxib can be used for capsidobine-induced hand foot syndrome cooling for doxorubicin, and everything else is uh, not supported. So the very, very long biotin, nine million things that are out there that you might try, this is what the data uh, supports. Um, topical steroids for, for highly inflamed areas, pain control, and again, dose interruption. So this is, a few, this is a place in cancer care, not necessarily targeted therapies where we need to do uh, better. Um, <clears throat> and that brings us back to our holiday shopper. So hand, foot, skin reaction, again, annoyingly named, but that's fine. Um, happens within the first two weeks of targeted therapy. Importantly, the patient's pain may be out of proportion to how bad it looks. So I actually had an Olympic runner who was um, African-American, so her feet were very dark, and she developed diffuse callus of the entire weight-bearing foot. It didn't look like anything. It looked like the foot of a runner, um, but her pain was like 8 out of 10 as long as she was on a targeted therapy. So especially in patients of color where redness might not uh, show through or... Um, um, or prior to you know, bad blisterings developed, the pain may be pretty significant. So this side effect is more pronounced in areas of pressure and friction. So getting back to my, my splitting here, this does not look like either of the two reactions before it. This, if you're a dermatologist, looks like psoriasis, an acquired or an inherited palmal plantar keratoderma. Like the way we would think about this if we, a patient walked in and we had no history is completely different than the way we would think about the other two types of reaction patterns. And so, therefore, this, that's how I think about these patients. Um, it is across multi-kinase inhibitors, uh, TKI. So we see this with BRAF inhibitors. We see this with, um, with uh, all sorts of uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Again, it is the dose-limiting toxicity for regorafenib. It's really common with serafinib. Um, so, again, used across the cancer center in multiple, uh, in multiple specialties. There have been a lot of small studies. There have been a lot of case reports in the literature. 
Um, the best data is actually for this hydrocolloid dressing containing a ceramide that is only available in Japan. Um, we have ceramides here, we have hydrocolloid dressings here, you know, as uh, something that we might recreate. You see, if you look in the case reports, that dermatologists were thinking like I was, that maybe this is more psoriasiform, how do we target keratinocytes? So what do we do? We recommend, um, what do we recommend prior to starting therapy? We recommend that you at least take off the patient's socks and look at their hands and feet. I know how burdensome it is to take care of these cancer patients. I know that they aren't undressed um, in their general oncology visits, but at least if you're going to start an MKI, take a look at their feet. This is a patient referred to us for hand-foot-skin reaction who just has tinea pedis. Um, but if the skin is inflamed or damaged to begin with, uh, they, they're at a setup for getting worse disease. Treat anything that's pre-existing. You can um, hummus off or file off hot spots or calluses prior to starting therapy, but we know from dermatology that psoriasis and disorders like this actually kebnerize. So this is worse with heat and friction. Um, if you ask Mario Lacatore at Sloan Kettering, he, recommend, he tells people, sure, go get pedicures, file off, the, file off the calluses. Once you're on treatment, I would strongly recommend against that. And it's in the guidelines in places that it's okay. And I asked him, why do you recommend that? And he said, because everybody in New York City wants to get pedicures. So I, I thought it was fine. And I was like, well, nobody in Boston wants to get a pedicure. They just want their feet not to blister off. Um, so, so no filing or rubbing or anything like that once they're on treatment. So dry skincare for everybody. Urea-based products actually help with the thickening. Avoid repetitive tasks or vig vigorous exercise. So if they are going to be shoveling, if they are a chef, lubricating their fingers with uh, Vaseline and wearing gloves before they do these activities decreases heat and friction. If they have to do something that's prolonged, I have them sort of like shock their hands or shock their feet in ice when they're done, just cool them off. Um, I tell everyone, and I, George started to get at this, I tell everyone if you're going to do anything walking that's more than normal, lubricate your feet like you're running a marathon. Put Vaseline on them between your toes. No heat, no friction. Wear well-fitting socks and shoes, and this is another little random pearl. Often in dermatology and medicine, we recommend cotton socks. It's like a thing. We were all taught to use cotton socks. I have no idea why. Have you ever run? You run. You wear cotton socks to run. You don't wear cotton socks to run because wearing cotton socks leads to <laughs> moisture, heat, friction, and blisters. So. So I actually tell my patients, wear well-fitting shoes with a wide toe box, nothing that's crushing your toes together. Just change your mindset about how you're thinking about these patients practically, and how can I protect their feet from heat and friction? You lubricate them. If you're going to go for a long walk, Vaseline your feet, wear an athletic sock and a well-fitting shoe. And the same story is true for scrotal irritation. So heat, friction causes toxicity in all these TKI patients. My most happy patients are the overweight man wearing regular boxer shorts who has eroded off their scrotum. Put them in some Under Armour or Nike boxer briefs that are wick away, take the scrotum away from the thigh, eliminate the thing that's causing friction, and they think you are a miracle worker. Um, did I learn that in the literature? No, I literally looked at a big fat guy and said like, what is the problem here and how does it relate to what's going on in the hands and feet? How can we intervene? So in the absence of good data or evidence, you have to apply common sense. Um, and. There's not a lot of space in medicine to do that uh, sometimes, but, but we have this sort of general rule in my clinics where like anybody has an idea of any kind, go ahead and throw it out there and we'll see what we can do. Um, so my holiday shopper, why is he called that? He had been doing great with that meticulous wound care, 120 milligrams a day, and he decided to go Christmas shopping literally all day. And that is what led to him blistering his uh, soles and his toes. So again, thinking about this as a disorder of keratinization, I started him on a medication that's approved for psoriasis. We put him on 10 milligrams of acetretin, titrated up to 25. His pain at rest was eliminated. He was able to stay on 120 milligrams of regorafenib uh, without any impairment from his hand-foot skin reaction. So we maximized his skin-directed therapies as I've gone through um, and put him on that oral retinoid. And so oral retinoids are something I do use frequently for refractory hand-foot skin reaction. Um, and again, those drugs have been around for decades, and we do have a lot of safety data on them. So my clinical pearls, if you wanted to take away everything that you need to know about hands and feet that's uh, evidence-based in one slide, here it is. Dorsal hands and feet is from the taxane. So when you see patients on, like, multiple combination therapy, if the problem's on the top of the hand, the, the taxane's probably driving it. Go ahead and cool them. Telecoxid for capsidabine, cool for doxorubicin, and then um, heat friction avoidance uh, for uh, your velocities. Moving on to another pattern. That was, that was helpful? Okay, good. Um, acne, right? Another non-life-threatening problem um, that leads to dose interruptions or patients coming off their cancer treatment. Um, this is a lovely 41-year-old gentleman um, who, you know, in addition to being 41 and making us grateful that we're on this side of the conversation, um, has metastatic colorectal cancer that progressed on Folfox, so multi-agent chemotherapy. 
Um, and cetuximab, an epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor, was added. And he developed these pimples within three days. They began to spread extensively. By two weeks, they were itchy and painful, which is important in understanding the mechanism of these side effects. His oncology team put him on minocycline, 100 milligrams BID. So um, they, they, started, they started the process. And he developed some gray pigmentation in his scars, which is an important side effect to know about. But he didn't clear his toxicity. So by the, by the time we saw him, um, he had pretty diffuse involvement. He was pretty uncomfortable. And I would say that the biggest complaint for most of these patients is that their privacy has been invaded. You know, they're 40 years old, they're 50 years old, they're 60 years old, and they suddenly have this problem on their face. They've had their metastatic cancer for years, and they live their lives, and now everybody at work knows something's wrong. Um, so it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, and so how we think about rashes that affect the areas that we can see, I think, is important. So EGFR inhibitors, epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors, we should predict are going to have a problem with the epidermis. They actually cause consistently these four major alterations on the skin. They cause dry skin that can be so severe it leads to dermatitis or eczema. They cause inflammation of the hair follicles. This is actually a lady who was on an EGFR inhibitor for over a decade for her metastatic breast cancer. She didn't want to come in or complain about her eyebrows because she didn't want anybody to mess with her drug that had kept her alive. Well, we just, you know, put some topical steroids on there and helped her. Um, but every single hair follicle in her eyebrow is inflamed. They cause bacterial superinfection. So they disrupt the skin microbiome in a way that causes staph aureus overgrowth. Um, and they cause uh, UV radiation sensitivity. So examples of acneiform or papulopustular eruption, again, significant in people of color because they leave post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation behind. So even after you get the inflammation under control, you're dealing with the sequela. Um, this is one that looks more like periorificial dermatitis, and I bring that up just again because I like to approach these patients as I would their other toxicity. So how do we manage these four major, you know, contributors? Well, we minimize dryness. We use our standard dry skin care recommendations. We decrease follicular inflammation. So this is not acne. It is an inflammatory process. You would never put topical steroids on acne, but if you put acne treatments on this problem, it gets very dry, irritated, and worse. We use topical steroids for um, acneiform eruptions from uh, targeted therapies. We use minocycline or doxycycline uh, oral antibiotics as anti-inflammatory. I actually use a ton of bleach baths to try to just uh, decrease the staph burden. So bleach baths are something I learned about in Pedsderm. Um, I actually don't know if they're still standard of care in Pedsderm, but a quarter of a cup of standard Clorox bleach in a big 40-gallon tub a few times a week just uh, gets rid of the, the overgrowth of staph aureus in most of these patients. Um, and that's important because as the staph aureus over, uh, uh, overgrows, you actually get a cycle of pro-inflammation pro that makes the toxicity worse. Um, and then UV radiation, actually really important. UVA causes photosensitivity from virtually all targeted therapies. So even if you don't remember what the drug is, you don't remember the class, if they're on any targeted therapy, they're probably photosensitive, and it's UVA that causes it, so they need a broad-spectrum sunscreen as part of their daily regimen. So it turns out there was a great study um, that came out in 2010, and it showed that if you do these four things, moisturize, sunscreen, topical steroids, and an oral tetracycline antibiotic, when you start an EGFR inhibitor, you reduce the grade two skin toxicity from 62% to 30%. I speak um, about this at some international conferences, and the Europeans are like, why are you telling us this? We know. We give everybody minocycline and topical steroids, but we just don't do it in the United States as a standard. Um, so we went back and we said, you know, how are we doing with this in terms of prophylaxis at Dana-Farber? And I had all of our uh, patients treated with cetuximab pulled from 2012 and 2017, and I'll tell you why I picked those years. Um, but we, you know, we showed basically that we were pretty crummy in 2012 at any prophylaxis. Uh, which was two years after those guidelines came out. And 2017, were a little bit better. So 2014 is when I launched the skin toxicity program. So DERM was sort of accessible, um, and we provide urgent access. We carry a pager. We're there to see your patients when you need them to be seen. We try really hard to classify rashes uh, beyond, quote, rash, so that we can understand what the heck's going on. And we work very closely with our uh, MedOn colleagues to manage um, life-threatening toxicity and quality of life-threatening toxicity as well. We created teaching sheets. We give lectures. I spoke at each disease center and talked about the side effects specific to their, their, their organs. Um, and our goal collectively is to try to preserve the ancillary cancer therapy whenever we can and whenever it's safe to do so. So this happened in 2014 to 2015. So I had data from 2012, eh, you know, about 25% prophylaxis rate, uh, went up to about 58% at our main campus where we physically were housed. Still kind of crummy, right? 58% is not great. But what we did see is that there was a change in the selection of agents, right? So more topical steroids, uh, less topical antibiotics, more anti uh, tetracycline. So we've made some progress. We're certainly nowhere near where we need to be. Um, 
But, but the good news is that if you don't get someone started uh, on prophylaxis and you intervene with these interventions, it works too. So it's never too late to go ahead and uh, treat the patient. So this patient got that regimen, sun protection, moisturizer, topical steroids, oral tetracycline antibiotic, better within a couple weeks. Just to highlight the fact that, again, you may not know about the drug or the drug class, but you can look at the pattern. MEK inhibitors cause papulopustular eruptions that are similar. They have some morphologic differences to the EGFR inhibitor toxicities, but they are follicular. They look similar. We approach them in a similar way. And again, my one little pearl or caveat here is that retinoids, which are too irritating for EGFR inhibitors, actually seem to work well with MEK inhibitors. Um, and so the mechanism is probably slightly different, uh, but just a little point there. Um, and again, getting back to this, um, what do I know about uh, the drug or class story? So I was seeing these patients in the, from the heme malignancies clinic. Abrutinib is a BTK inhibitor that's approved for uh, Mantle cell, CLL, Waldenstrom's, and Graffer's host disease. People kept coming in with this mild rosacea-like papulopustular eruption. I called Matt Davids, and I was like, what the heck's going on here? Um, the pattern seems like EGFR inhibition. And he said, oh, BTK inhibitors block EGFR inhibitors, EGFR in our cell lines. Oh. So when we looked at everybody in our cohort, it turns out there was nothing in the literature about this. Um, but the... Uh, if you actually looked at the cohort, patients were getting dermatitis, they were getting papulopustular eruptions, and so it was mimicking EGFR inhibitors. So we treated her that way. We put her back on her abrutinib. We gave her some doxycycline, photoprotection, desinide, and she did great and was able to stay on her BTK inhibitor. <clears throat> so just a quick, um, the things that overlapped between BTK, EGFR, MEK, again, xerosis, treat it with steroids and moisturizers. P patients get these fissures on the fingertips. My pearl here is that... Um, it's inflammatory, so topical steroids, but if you can't get it under control, super glue is fine. I prefer to use a medical grade of product rather than just Gorilla Glue um, because it smells less bad. Um, Next Care makes a skin glue that's four bucks on Amazon. That's thicker, and my patients tend to like that. It lasts longer. Um, here's an example of the super infection. Again, bleach baths, uh, staph clearance. Pycomegaly can be quite profound. This guy's eyelashes are two and a half centimeters long. It curls in, it causes corneal scarring. Um, these patients often have a hard time finding someone who will trim them for them. Uh, paronychia across many multikinase inhibitor classes, you treat it as you would paronychia. Culture, if there's pus, go ahead and put them on antibiotics, topical steroids. Um, mechanical things, again, keep those toes from getting crushed together. Common sense. Yeah. Sure. So I usually have them soaking there, and I tell them to take their face cloth and just dip in, hang it over their head and wash. Um, the other thing is there's something called CLN wash, which is also available, and, they, and some people prefer to use that to wash their face. But again, it's just soak, hang, wash, just like swimming in a chlorinated pool. You don't stick your face in the chlorinated pool? Oh, you can, but you can't stay underwater for 15 minutes. So you can, you can dip a cloth, um, but since, you know, yes, they can dip. They can, and they should if they are able. Uh, but most people are limited in the tub by their size. Not me. I can. Um, so I'm a uh, high-yield slide here for everybody because we see lots of patients who are on all sorts of topical steroids. Um, the topical steroid, when you're standing there looking at the patient on targeted therapy with eczema-like stuff and acneiform-like stuff, for the face growing breasts, we tend to use desinide, hydrocortisone, 2.5%, something similar. For the body, I give everybody a one-pound jar of I'll, I'll click through so you can take the whole slide picture. Um, I give everybody a triamcinolone 0.1% one-pound jar. Um, the thing we see most commonly is patients coming in with, like, 15-gram tubes. They can't get it on anywhere. One-pound jar, triamcinolone. Use it everywhere. Um, if it's more severe, clobetazole, halobetazole, betamethasone. For the palms and soles, the skin is thick. We just saw those pictures of thickened skin. You really need a class 1 or a super potent topical steroid to penetrate there, preferably an ointment. And for the scalp, there are foams and liquids and things like that that can get through the hair. So ointments are the best. They work better than creams, but they don't work if people won't use them. So if the patient refuses an ointment, a cream's better than nothing. Um, so that's your steroid summary that everyone can take away. So for our guy with this terrible acneiform eruption, um, we maximized everything. We used our topical steroids. We gave him doxycycline. We switched him from minnow to doxy because he was getting dispigmentation from the minocycline. Sunscreen, emollients, bleach baths. Didn't work. Um, couldn't get him clear enough because he was so dark that any pimple left behind uh, a significant uh, issue. So he's actually uh, just started on isotretinoin. And these folks, we can use 10 to, 10 to 20 milligrams daily just indefinitely, which is an I pledge fun experience. Um, uh, but uh, 
Um, but acetretin doesn't work as well. So low-dose isotretinoin in refractory patients works really great. With that, getting into the, you know, the, the meat of oncology right now. Um, I want to share with you a patient. This is, a, this is sort of a classic in my clinic uh, or going into the hospital. Mal sores and a rash in a patient on immunotherapy who had a stem cell transplant before. Not complicated at all. We think it's Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So this is a patient who 12 days after pembrolizumab, which was administered for microsatellite uh, instable MSI high colon cancer, uh, in the setting of a prior stem cell transplant, developed this mucositis. So he was admitted for a, a hemorrhagic uh, crusting of his lips. He was seen by dental. 17 days after the dose, he developed a rash. So at the time of presentation, just his mouth. Um, he had platelet transfusion-dependent thrombocytopenia from his AML in this setting as well. So remember, everything that he gets on his skin is going to look purple and weird because um, he has no platelets. So that's a pretty impressive and scary mouth. Um, here he is five days later when he develops this rash. That's not particularly alarming. And if I just showed you the rash picture, no one would be like, ah, SJS. Um, but in the setting of the lips eroding off, complicated. Um, he had a skin biopsy at the time. He was using high-potency topical steroids. You're, we're all stuck trying to figure out, is this SJS? Is this an immunotherapy-related eruption? Is this both? Is this GVHD? Where do we even begin with these guys? His biopsy showed interface dermatitis. It had some eosinophils. Pathology said drug was favored over GVHD. I'm not sure they can ever make anything declarative like that. Um, at this point, his liver function, his transaminases begin to increase, and he's put on IV uh, solumedrol and tapered to prednisone, discharged 27 days after the dose. 34 days later, he still has erosive changes of his tongue. So his quality of life is horrible because he can't eat. Um, and here he is, day 34, and this is his rash. So if you were to um, sort of describe what you're seeing here, you see these purple flat-top papules. His prednisone had been continued again because there's this question of GVH versus immunotherapy toxicity. They tried to add acetretin, but his LFTs wouldn't tolerate it. He's doing everything he can for his mouth. This is literally the most beautiful photo of lichen planus or a lichenoid eruption right here. These are purple polygonal pheritic papules that is like on everybody's step exam when trying to describe lichen planus or a lichenoid eruption. So here he is day 41. You know, when you think about Stevens-Johnson syndrome, you don't start thinking about a 31 or 40, 34 or 41 day course. Here he is um, where we, I decided to stop calling these things SJS-like and TEN-like. And I said, this is a severe mucocutaneous eruption in the setting of PD-1 inhibitor therapy after transplant. Who, who cares what we call it? Um, let's just be um, focused on how we treat it. So he got to a cyclovir. We added clotrimazole in case there was fungal infection in that mouth. His liver mets had progressed and he was discharged on to hospice care. But like many people with like 10 prior malignancies who seem like they shouldn't be alive, he was like, yeah, hospice. Uh, he decided to continue platelets and IVF. We added tacrolimus solution. So this is not something I typically use, but you can actually compound uh, tacrolimus into a solution. And it was, uh, it was a game changer for him. So his mouth improved dramatically, his PO intake improved, and his quality of life improved. So here he is, um, day 51. Yes, sorry, uh, tacrolimus compounded as a solution, as a swish and spit. Uh, and we have a great oral medicine team that works with us to teach us these crazy things. Um, so just a word on SJSTEN and oncology. Uh, if you look at the literature and if you look at, you know, the FDA reporting system, it's actually not that common. So we're always worried about it. Nobody wants to miss it. But, but, but cancer drugs causing it is actually quite rare. And um, what I've seen more recently are antibiotics inducing severe toxicities and people attributing it to the chemotherapy or to the immunotherapy. Um, and so, so it's really important to sort of just know that the cases are not that uh, common in the literature. So how do I approach these patients who are on uh, targeted uh, checkpoint inhibitors? Um, so I, I ask again, what do we know about the drug classes? So what do we know about CTLA-4 inhibitors or ipilimumab? We know that this is a place where the maculopapular rash makes an appearance. Now, if you look in the literature about toxicities from immunotherapy or any cancer therapy or anything, you see a lot of maculopapular rashes. Uh, in immunotherapy, it's actually quite rare. So CTLA-4 inhibitors cause it. Um, they cause vitiligo. They cause itch. This is simply to highlight that the reaction patterns we see with uh, CTLA-4 inhibitors are broad. 
and they are specific. And as dermatologists, when we see these toxicities, we think about the cells that are involved, we think about the pathways that are involved, and we try to target the toxicity in as specific a way as possible. So basically everything uh, has been reported with immunotherapy. For PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitor therapies, which again are used way more ubiquitously at this point, we see rashes actually up to about 60% of the patients now have skin complaints. Most of these people are itchy. Any prior rash that they've ever had can, can uh, make a resurgence. They can develop new autoimmunities or autoimmune-like diseases. We do see some recurring reaction patterns that I do want to quickly highlight. So if you ask um, Misha Rosenbach at Penn, to whom we submit all of these case reports and case series, he says, yeah, 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 I get it. Okay, thank you. Yep, immunotherapy causes dermatology. I get it. There it is. Um, but that's actually the most concise way to, to, to put it. And it should be reassuring or freeing to everyone who feels like they need to manage their own side effects. So oncologists should not feel like they need to manage all of the side effects from the treatments that they give when the side effects are every possible disease in dermatology. It's just a shift, it's a paradigm shift. So we all need to work together. Um, and that is because, you know, we know we know a lot about the skin, right? We know that there are these billions of diverse T cells at the level of the skin. This is from Rachel. We know that these different subsets of T cells are responsible for different parts of host defense <laughs> and that they cause a whole host of different toxicities. So non-specifically or dysregulating the immune checkpoint at the level of the skin and every other organ is going to cause every possible toxicity. And if you look at this New England Journal of Medicine review, there's a few key points here. One is that Misha was wrong. Um, immunotherapy actually causes internal medicine. It causes every possible immune-related side effect in every organ system. So that should be even more reassuring and more freeing. And that's the reason we have the immunotherapy toxicity program at the Farber and the Brigham now. It's so that there are key people within each specialty who are focused on this, who are trying to stay up on the literature, and who are there to help uh, try to pick things apart, and who are there to say, hey, the person has colitis, and they have psoriasis with psoriatic arthritis and they're steroid refractory, what should we do next? Let's pick something that hits the gut and the skin. Let's do infliximab or not. Maybe they just have temporal arthritis. Let's use an IL-6 inhibitor. So we work together collaboratively, collaboratively across the medical specialties to try to find ways to intervene on, the, on this problem uh, in a targeted way. So the other key point of this is that when you look at the clinical trials data, what do we know about the skin side effects? Nothing, because if it was red, it was called a rash, and if it was white, it was vitiligo. Um, and it's, you know, of no, no fault to anyone. Uh, that's just all that was allowed to be captured uh, by our oncologists. So then you say, what resources do we have? You can go to the NCCN guidelines, and you can look for the management of immune-related adverse events. Well, now I know how these things are developed, and it's very, very sad and scary. Um, if you look at skin, you'll see that everything that happens to the skin is in one box. So whether or not it's psoriasis or neutrophilic dermatosis in one box. And the recommendations are, if you fail topical steroids, to give one to two milligrams per kilogram of steroids for at least four weeks. Imagine walking into your dermatology's office and whether you had eczema or bullous pemphigoid, they said, you have a rash, all I have for you is high dose steroids, you're gonna be on them for a very long time, whether or not that's best for you or not, and nothing more. So this is the way we sort of set up our oncology colleagues to manage these patients, this is what, what's out there in the guidelines. Um, if you look at the bullous disease, how to manage blistering diseases in these guidelines, it says to use rituximab. So in the NCCN, National and International Guidelines, it says you can use a NTCD20 antibody because I published one case report. So these guidelines are a little wacky to me. Um, so this is, the, this is the best we have right now. So I think that this, the simple overarching view is not all rashes are the same. Psoriasis is not a maculopapular rash. So how do we approach these patients? Always assess for a se severe cutaneous adverse reactions. This is the case for immunotherapy. It's the case for everything, no matter how many drugs the patient's on and how much you are frightened by what you're seeing. Rule out uh, severe toxicity. Evaluate the morphology. So see if you can actually put it in a category. And if you can't, have a low threshold to refer or do a biopsy. Um, let the clinical exam and the biopsy guide how you treat it. If it's psoriasis, treat it as psoriasis. Don't treat it as a maculopapular eruption. Our goal is always to treat the toxicity in as targeted a way as possible. So I can knock out whatever the heck's contributing, but leave the rest of the immune system intact. If it's a neutrophilic problem, let's get rid of the neutrophils and try as hard as we can to leave the rest of the T cells alone to fight the malignancy um, so that we can try to uncouple the toxicity from the therapeutic effect. And this may seem like it's like, Duh, right? It's like common sense. Of course, this is what we should be doing, but we're not. We're just globally giving everyone prednisone and immunosuppressing them. 
So all maculopapular rashes are not created equal. This is a mild one a week after a Pembro. This is another one that was pretty focal, but this one occurred two months after the last dose of Pembro, rapidly spreading in a patient on prednisone with colitis who has an elevated amylase and debilitating arthritis. So even with the tools that we have, um, placing you know the severity of these things uh, in the right category is difficult. And so again, call for help. Just call for help. Work together. Um, what do we look for? What, when do we worry? We, look, we worry for when there's confluent erythema, confluent redness. We worry if there are blisters or skin tenderness, if there's mucosal involvement, if the people look or feel sick. These are all reasons to call for urgent consultation if you suspect it. So call dermatology, check your basic labs, check your eosinophils, look for systemic hypersensitivity, look for any other causes, any drugs that were started in two to four weeks prior, specifically um, antibiotics is often often happens, and stop any non-essential medications. We are always going to tell you to do that. If you confirm a severe cutaneous adverse reaction, that's when you institute your uh, 1 to 2 megs per day of PRED. This is not really important to go through. Um, it's simply to say that we're continuously working on these algorithms and, and providing them to our, our colleagues to help them guide them through managing them. And again, I'm not going to go through each of the algorithms, but I, act, but I think rather than these one big bucket paragraphs, uh, in the guidelines. We need specific guidelines for different toxicities. So PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors cause dermatology, true statement. Um, and so the three reaction patterns that we see more commonly are lichenoid or lichen planus-like reactions. This, I would say, is actually the most specific one. It happens anytime early to many, many months later. Lichenoid is a clinical and a pathologic descriptor, so we see the, the purple polygonal papules, but we see this dense infiltrate. And what we're learning now as we look at more and more of these biopsies is that to see what the heck's going on, you actually have to look past the lichenoid infiltrate. The, past the lichenoid infiltrate, you might see the subacute cutaneous lupus. You might see the psoriasiform hyperplasia. The lichenoid stuff is always there. So flat top papules, money variants, all the variants of, bullets, of uh, lichen planus can appear. Um, Lichenoid eruptions are treated with more than just steroids. Again, just to show the extent. <clears throat> so my lichenoid eruption pearl gets back to our first case. Severe lichenoid eruptions can affect the skin and mucous membranes. They can look like SGS and TEN. We still treat them as such, but mechanistically, they might not be the same. And so we give high-dose steroids to these folks, which we might not do in a true case of SJS, TEN, and I might actually consider rechallenge. So why don't I think this is true TEN? Here he is sloughing. Here's his mouth erosions. Here he is on day five. How many times have you seen a TEN patient who's sitting up or standing in front of the door in their hospital room? The guy's like skin sloughing off, but he's fine. He doesn't have classic TEN, so something's different. Um, again, <clears throat> simply to show that we use, I use a lot of oral acetretin uh, in these folks. Dermatologists have more tools than just steroids. We rarely use systemic steroids for this and only temporarily while adding a steroid sparing agent. Psoriasis is sort of the bane of my existence. Um, psoriasis is frequently induced by immunotherapy. You can get flares of old psoriasis. When we, think, when we see psoriasis, we treat with NSAIDs. We use methotrexate if there's joint involvement. We add oral retinoids. You know, this is, this is how we approach them. This is a patient who had psoriasis with arthralgias who failed all of our standard things. <clears throat> and so I put her on a premolast, and within 12 weeks, her, her life was changed. Quality of life dramatically improved. A premolast is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor more targeted than just giving prednisone. So again, same story for psoriasis with one key point. We, I, I can't say never because in rare cases of erythroderma with electrolyte instability, we might use prednisone in a psoriasis patient. When you give, when you give prednisone to a psoriasis patient, they flare when you taper it off. Um, it's, it's contraindicated. And yet all of these patients with psoriasis on the trials were treated with steroids. So um, lots of other treatments for psoriasis that don't involve steroids. And then lastly, the, the, the reaction pattern I want to talk about are the blistering diseases because those make everybody freak out. Um, and they are enriched. They seem to be occurring somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times above the general population, which is still rare, but, but happens. <clears throat> they can happen early six weeks. They can happen as late as 19 months. Once you stop the immunotherapy, this problem is turned on. This is a B-cell or antibody-mediated disease, which should be interesting to people because we're talking about T-cell activating drugs leading to B-cell disease. Um, patients often develop multiple autoantibodies so they can get blisters in the mouth and blisters on the skin. If you look at the cohort out of Yale, they found seven uh, patients with this out of 853 with a six-month onset, multiple different uh, malignancy types. All of their patients received steroids. 
In our 3,000 patients, we found 12 cases. Our late, mean latency onset was eight and a half months. Again, a spattering with malignancies, more males than females. Uh, two of our patients did not get systemic steroids, which is great, um, but that's in part because we diagnosed four patients with non-bolus or pre-bolus pemphigoid, which requires a high index of suspicion. So if you start seeing these people who are itchy out of proportion to their rash with eczema that's not going away with topical steroids, um, this uh, can actually be treated as bolus pemphigoid, uh, and that was diagnosed in this patient. This person failed topicals, failed doxycycline nicotinamide, had an elevated IgE, and so we used, again, a targeted therapy, omalizumab, uh, which hits IgE and, and got them clear. Um, and again, I like this, this algorithm because once you get into here, it's a hot mess. Like, you try things, and then you fail, and you try other things, but I think the simple thing is, um, if you're putting a patient on steroids for BP, you should probably have your steroids-bearing agent ready. Uh, if the IgE is elevated, I've been going to omalizumab. If the IgE is not elevated, I've been going to rituximab. And then everything else, again, this is done. This should be done in continuous communication with your um, with your derm and medonc and medicine and anyone else who needs to be involved, colleagues. A little side note here. We often use doxycycline nicotinamide um, in bolus pemphigoid. That's not too severe. I've tried it. I've had zero success in seven patients. That's just seven patients. It uh, just hasn't worked at all. And there is now data out of uh, MD Anderson that shows that if you uh, decrease gut microbiome diversity by any means, so probiotics or antibiotics, you decrease response to immunotherapy in melanoma patients. Whether or not this can be extended out beyond melanoma patients um, remains to be seen. But when I'm sitting there with an immunotherapy patient and I'm gonna put them on doxycycline now for the BP and I haven't had any success, I just stopped doing it because I don't wanna decrease their gut microbiome diversity uh, just in case. So treat infections if you have to treat infections, but when we have no data, no, I don't know. So a little uh, side note on complications of steroids. So again, everybody's getting these steroids. They're getting them for long periods of time. This patient, when he developed his bolus pemphigoid, uh, his lung cancer was in a complete remission. He's got like 4% body surface area at best, um, at worst. And the company and the PI required six weeks prednisone taper, would not start a steroid spraying agent. When you taper off, the BP flares. 16-week prednisone taper. He resulted in hospitalization. He was delirious. He had multiple fractures. We ultimately were able to give him rituximab in Florida <coughs> when he left, and they, our oncologists were no longer worried about the company. Um, and his malignancy was stable at two years. And again, that's the basis for the guidelines. Um, <coughs> second patient, low-dose pred. <coughs> While we tried to, sorry, omalizumab for him, <coughs> based on his insurance, we had to get a waiver for all off-label drugs. <coughs> there are no FDA-approved drugs for bolus pemphigoid which is great for all the Medicare patients who can't get any drugs that are off-label. <clears throat> so his prednisone was increased when he rapidly progressed. Uh, he, it was $30,000 per dose for Ritux. We added methotrexate while waiting for this approval. He signed the waiver ultimately on October 18th, so, you know, six weeks later. At the time that the rituximab was infusing, omalizumab was approved, great. Um, his weight was declining. He had a restaging CT, and it turned out he had invasive fungal infection as well as pulmonary emboli. So his mobility rapidly declined with these ulcers, and uh, he was immunosuppressed, and we gave him a fungal infection and um, PEs, in my opinion, by making him stuck in his uh, wheelchair. So uh, steroids are not just steroids. Uh, they, are, they are a problem. Um, if you ask oncologists, somebody's an oncologist in the room, has anybody heard that steroids don't mitigate immunotherapy effect? Go ahead and use them. They're safe. They don't decrease efficacy. Like, it's totally counterintuitive, um, but that is what has been said for many years, and it's based on this study. Uh, so this study compared patients with all grade, patients who got steroids from those who didn't, but that's apples and oranges, because you got steroids if you had a toxicity, and you didn't get steroids if you didn't have a toxicity. So if you compare apples and oranges, um, they don't, the patients with toxicities don't do worse. Um, but if toxicity is associated with better outcomes, then this, then the, Patients with toxicity should really have been higher uh, on, the, on the chart in the first place. So if the immune-related adverse events are associated with better outcomes, we're losing the benefit. Um, and so I think uh, if you look at the literature, we see that vitiligo, so sort of an on-target effect, is associated with better outcomes. If you look at dermatologic adverse events in general, you get a side effect, better outcomes, better progression-free and overall survival. In our cohort of bullous pemphigoid patients, we tried to look at overall survival. You can't, um, because the longer you're alive, well, you can. You just have to control for guarantee time bias, and we need a lot more patients for that. Um, but we do see that even antibody-mediated toxicity is associated with better responses. Um, and if you look at the overarching uh, analyses, 
any toxicity is associated with better outcomes when compared with no toxicity, and down here, more toxicity, even better outcomes. Um, Alex Faji, Mass General, did this great study, and he compared apples to apples. So hypophysitis is inflammation of the pituitary gland. It was controversial for a period whether or not steroids might actually reduce the inflammation and save the pituitary. So in patients, so people were doing different things. Those patients who got seven and a half milligrams or less of steroids, so steroid replacement, compared with those who got 20 milligrams or higher trying to treat it, did markedly better. So much better overall survival when you compare apples to apples. And we also know that when you're on steroids at the time of PD-1 inhibition, <coughs> less is better than more. <coughs> so when we have a patient who has an autoimmune disease and we need to have them on something, we always try to get the PRED less than 10. We try to get them as far away from their infusion, even like 10 days before they're going to get their PD-1, stop that steroid, get the PD-1 in, and then add it back if you have to. But there's something about timing that's really important. So my 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 firm uh, stance on steroids is that while there is some debate that remains about which side effects are associated with response and in which patients, immune-related adverse events do appear to be associated with response and survival, and steroids do mitigate effect in at least some people, which is what we would have expected or predicted applying common sense and knowledge. Um, they do have systemic side effects. They are not without risk. And so they should be used early and liberally for life-threatening toxicity. If you're worried about severe colitis, pneumonitis, myocarditis, hit them, hit them hard, hit them early. Um, but they should be avoided for diseases where we wouldn't use steroids anyway. So steroids, psoriasis, big no. Um, my summary for in immunotherapy-induced skin toxicities, they can literally cause anything. Um, so I simply approach the rash as I would the disease outside of the immunotherapy setting, targeted as, in as targeted a way as possible, and uh, try to be selective about which uh, drugs we're using, and then work really closely with my medicine colleagues to figure out how best to hit many toxicities with one drug. So again, asking ourselves, what do I know about the drug? What do I know about the class? What do I know about the pattern of toxicity? And how can I use this information to keep the patient not just living as long as possible, but living as well as they can for as long as they can? So I'm going to leave you with my friend Connor. This lovely gentleman had leukemia as a child, got a stem cell transplant, suffered from multi-organ graft-versus-host disease, including of the lungs. So he had a bilateral lung transplant as well. He was managed with voriconazole, which is a photosensitizing drug, which means he's had every skin cancer known to man at the time of his 18-year-old uh, last, last day of high school picture here, even though he's tiny. Extra memory pageants, he's had melanoma, he's had everything because voriconazole increases your risk of skin cancer. He and his mother started a foundation which provides pizza to all the kids in the hospital uh, every Friday. Um, and his mother very aggressively wants to remind us all that uh, research is very important, but we need to cure cancer, but ways to cure it humanely. So as a mother of a child suffering through this, it wasn't just side effects. It was inhumane. I think a lot of what we do is actually inhumane when we think about the person sitting on the other side. So thank you very, very much. And I can... Hang out for questions. Yeah, so um, Biotepo, Busulfan, a lot of the, the drugs used for conditioning for leukemia, and I presume are still similar now, cause intratriginous or erosive eruptions in the, in the folds of the skin. Um, and in some of them, we know the mechanism. We know that the drug's actually excreted in warm areas and then causes a hypersensitivity locally, which just erodes off the skin. Um, and so I haven't seen genital ulcerations in kids in a while, but I haven't done peds derm in a while. Um, but Targeted therapies can cause aphthous-like ulcers uh, of the mouth and of the general areas, including the BTK and multikinase inhibitors. Um, and targeted therapies, usually when they cause that pattern, it's in more than one area. So groin folds, underarm, stuff like that.
the gut might win. The gut might win. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we so we launched the immunotherapy toxicity service in June of 2018, sort of in response to this. We were seeing. So I very firmly in my clinics make sure that every single person gets a full review of system and um, any screening lab. So if I'm doing labs for rash, I'm doing um, you're checking the UA for RBCs. If there's then you're ordering sediment. Like we have a sort of series of what you would order in a toxicity patient panel. Um, and so we've worked. So I have a team each. Oncotoxicity subspecialty expert. You know, we have our oncodermatologist, our oncocardiologist, our onco room, everybody who meets monthly, um, and we go through these panels and we say, if the person comes in with fatigue, endocrine, what do you want? Uh, and they give us a panel. So we've sort of, and I'm happy to share those. Like, like you no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, so we've been, we've sort of tried to develop these algorithms that we can validate internally and then and spread. Um, but I'm fine with saying this is a unvalidated algorithm. It's the best we have from expert consensus then let us know if you have feedback on it. Um, but we have these, I've been arguing that we need co-localization and care of the patient because running around talking to people is difficult. Um, but we have a survivorship program, so we actually are on the same floor as renal uh, in the clinic at the cancer center. Um, so I can just run down the hall and say, Albert, how do I order it? Do you want me to do a 24-hour urine? You know, I asked him the question. So I totally agree um, that it, it, we are making the diagnosis of pneumonitis so frequently by saying one toxicity is associated with other toxicities. Tell me about your shortness of breath and trending them down the hall of the derm clinic. It's pretty hilarious, actually. Doctor dermatologists are doing pulse ox in the hallway, but that's how you diagnose it. Like, um, yeah, I'm happy to share any resources. But I think the more people work together collaboratively, the more we're going to learn clinically, and the more we're going to learn from a research perspective because it overlaps tremendously. Yeah, so one of the one of the most fascinating things I think that we're trying to figure out is not only what's present, but what's absent. So if you when you look at the oncology literature, it's really hard to figure out where to even begin, right? So rash, one diagnosis, arthralgias or arthritis, one diagnosis. What we what we see clinically is a higher incidence, I think, of like polymyalgia like syndromes. Um, but we're not seeing SLE. Like we're not seeing systemic lupus. So I think we have a long way to go from a from a translational research perspective, figuring out what things are actually being turned on and what aren't. Um, but I will say universally, um, the inflammation in the organ is turned on, but what specific side effects are activated is unknown. So Hopkins has the strongest like onco room program. I think there's like an you know each onco cars at Vanderbilt, onco Durham at Dana Farber, onco room at Hopkins. There's like people who are sort of trying to push this forward at each place. Um, and so the short answer is we don't know, but I think if you approach the disease, so giant cell arteritis from immunotherapy, don't just give prednisone, try, try tocilizumab, you know, try something else is the best approach. So what would you do in the setting of that disease in the absence of immunotherapy, and is it more targeted than uh, prednisone? We, yeah, you know, IL-23 inhibitors, so I've learned, uh, can kill lung cancer cell lines in murine molecules. So my next line for psoriasis, if uh, the acetretin and epremolase fail and methotrexate doesn't work, well, if it's a lung cancer patient, I use IL-23 because of one paper on mouse models. I think that's the current state of science. Long way to go. So in the abrutinib cohort, I think the paper just came out like last week. We had one where we had to take them off because they failed. Uh, Plaquenil couldn't tolerate colchicine. We weren't able to get them under control. But we usually try prednisone taper and then add something that's anti-neutrophilic. So the BMT population is particularly difficult because we can't just use dapsone. Um, so I would try dapsone if their counts can tolerate it. 
plaquenil if it won't, hydroxychloroquine, pulsacine sometimes is sufficient. Um, it's tough. Uh, but the minocycline, doxycycline sometimes work for paniculitides, NSAIDs, and then I would phone a friend and say, what am I missing for paniculitis? Um, anything else you guys would consider trying in this particular patient? Really interesting. And something that we also see with BRAF neck targeted therapy. So the paniculitis crosses multiple TKIs as well. Um, so there's like a giant puzzle here. The messiness or the off-target effects overlap in ways that I don't think anybody predict.